ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. And like always, we've got the best show ever on radio lined up today. Yes, indeed. Our guest today is the author of... Achoo! On Gesundheit. Well, thank you kindly, God Michael. God bless you. But that's actually what the book is called. Achoo! Gesundheit. The Uncommon Life of Your Common Cold. By Jennifer Ackerman. This infection is so common, Americans chalk up over 100 million doctor visits, 1.5 million trips to the emergency department, and an economic burden of over $60 billion each year. Ms. Ackerman will take us on a virtual tour of the world's most successful pathogen. $60 billion, that's our show's budget. And later in the show, we'll debate how to best promote public health. In England, there's a new plan to nudge citizens rather than just nanny them, Mary Poppins, to healthier living. We'll explain how British nudging versus nannying actually play out in health policy and what we can draw from them. Give you new meaning to the term... A little sugar helps the medicine go down. Right. And sounds like a polite way of turning health advocacy into regulation in my book, but we'll want to find out what you think our government's role should be in public health. Should we follow the Brits and nudge, nudge, nudge? Or does the public need a nanny? Or should the government just stay out of public health altogether? We'll tell you how you can voice your opinion on that at our website. You can also join in the conversation today by calling in at 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322 or email us at sol at reachmd.com. Tweet us at handle ReachMD or just show up here. Just show up. But first, some news from the world of medicine that caught our fancy recently. This is a great time of year when every publication and news show hauls out a best-of list. And this year, Time Magazine picked 50 amazing inventions of 2010, including eight gems from the health, medicine, and bioengineering sectors. Here's a recap of a few favorites. And the first is the malaria-proof mosquito. That's right, a mosquito immune to malaria, disrupting this infection's delivery service one vector at a time. So everyone listening knows malaria is a huge global health problem. And mosquitoes are responsible for transmitting malaria to 250 million people annually. There's no vaccine, and even if there were, global distribution would be a huge challenge, as we all know. So those really bright scientists at the University of Arizona started looking into the vectors. Recently, they genetically engineered a mosquito that's fully immune to plasmodium. The idea is that if you release these mosquitoes into the wild and they become dominant, eventually the species will become malaria-resistant. And we can say bye-bye to mosquito transmission. Bye-bye. But the next trick is to figure out how to actually make a stronger mosquito. Weights. They lift weights. <laughs> Very heavy weights. Researchers say this next step may be 10 years away because right now genetic modification actually makes the mosquitoes weaker, who would have thunk? And to be honest, a part of me hears that and thinks, well, be careful what you wish for, right? I mean, because if you introduce a new dominant mosquito, I think you can expect a dominant new vector for Remember, something else. Remember, it's not nice to fool Mother Nature. <laughs> well, next to malaria, I think a lot of us would take our chances with the lab model. But you got to remember Darwin and screwing that up. <laughs> remember Darwin, everybody. Yes. Don't screw with the mosquitoes. Good point. All right. Next on the list, a device called the iWriter. And I'm not talking about the letter I, like is used to say iPod or iPhone. No, this is the optic kind of eye and a writing device that draws eye movements. This is amazing. The eye writer is a set of glasses that can detect where a person's eyes are looking and allow them to literally draw with their eyes. It was designed for people unable to use their limbs due to a neuromuscular condition and was first tested in one such person, popular Los Angeles-based graffiti artist Tony Kwan, whose nickname was Tempt. Tony was diagnosed with ALS in 2003. 
Now, the glasses were designed by a commercial production company called the Ebling Group in a collaboration with two other organizations, the Graffiti Research Lab, I like that, and the Not Impossible Foundation. But the goal was to develop the most simple and inexpensive eye-tracking headset possible and open-source the software so that all ALS patients around the world could replicate the headset and become able to write and create art this way. And we mentioned the first beta tester, artist Tony Kwan, who put the glasses to use in April 2009, which was the first drawing he'd done since he'd been diagnosed with ALS six years earlier. And after a few months of practice with the eye writer from his hospital bed, he completed a large-scale template and transmitted it to a team of artists waiting to project his artwork onto a 10-story building next to the Santa Monica Freeway in Los Angeles. Now, I'm not sure if that project was entirely legal, <laughs> but it's definitely inspiring nonetheless. Oh, absolutely. And I really want to get in on this, what is that, the Not Impossible Foundation and the uh, Graffiti Research Lab? Nothing is impossible, well, Matt. Especially if, <laughs> if you listen to this show, nothing's impossible. Nothing. Now, next up on some of the best inventions of the year, researchers at Yale University took a first step toward being able to grow new organs by growing and transplanting animal lungs in lab. Lung in a box. The researchers, working with lab rats, took apart and regrew a lung outside the body. They then transplanted it back into the rat and watched as the lung successfully assumed 95% of normal inhaling and exhaling functions for an hour. The ultimate goal is to replicate this procedure on a larger scale with humans, replacing enough lung tissue to aid patients with emphysema or lung cancer. And technically what these researchers did was strip down the lung to its scaffolding, basically washing away the cell lining of the lung and just leaving the connective tissue and airway tubes. And that scaffolding resets the lung into the equivalent of a universal donor since collagen doesn't get rejected when transplanted. They put the lung in, uh, at least the scaffold, into an incubator that mimicked the same environment where fetal lungs develop. And the step after that was to inject stem cells from a newborn rat and those cells grew air sacs, airways, and blood vessels to form a transplantable lung. I want to regrow all my organs and start over. But the researchers are cautioning that we're probably still 20 years plus away from this build-it-yourself model for transplants in humans because the stem cell research needs to improve before this approach will work without risk of organ rejection. The scientists would have to grow the new lung using the recipient's own cells, and this kind of personalized stem cell transplant isn't yet possible. Isn't that bittersweet, But we though? will be reporting it on our show 20, <laughs> 20 years, years from now. It's so bittersweet. They're saying, you know, they're giving us a taste and saying, but we'll check you later in about 20, 30 years. We'll just let you know. And last but not least on our short list, incubators, as we've been talking about, for premature newborns in this case, but made entirely out of old car parts. Now, if you thought setting up and maintaining incubators in third-world countries was impossible, think again. The Neo Nurture Incubator, created by designers at a Massachusetts firm called Design That Matters, another firm I'd love to get in with. <laughs> it's inexpensive, it's easy to operate, and simple to replace parts. Just head to the auto shop or junkyard. Obviously, you should probably clean up what you find first. Or we could just look around the studio. There's a lot of stuff around here. <laughs> now, here's the scope of the problem. Premature births account for at least 25% of neonatal deaths worldwide. About half of those die from inability to stay warm until their bodies mature further. Life-saving incubators are prohibitively expensive in most developing countries where the money to train staff and provide maintenance just isn't there, and you just can't plug it into the jungle floor. But auto parts, now that's a different story. Those are plentiful in most developing countries along with people who know how to use them. So designers set about building an incubator out of car parts. Among the parts that the Neo Nurture incubator uses are sealed beam headlights as a heating element, 
A dashboard fan for convective heat circulation, signal lights and a door chime serve as alarms, and a motorcycle battery and car cigarette lighter provide backup power during <laughs> incubator transport and power outages. I wonder if they plug the radio in, too, so they can play soothing songs for You the might baby. as well. This is unbelievable. And we're told the first neo-nurture incubators were made of parts from broken-down Toyota 4Runners. So <laughs> talk about unique advertising there. But the idea here was to resist any reliance on standard cars so that the incubators could be made from whatever car parts happen to be lying around. I'm thinking of that three-wheeled car from the 70s. Just talk about portable. It's amazing. So we're going to have a contest on this radio show. We want everyone to go out and build an incubator from their car and send it to us and see if you can still drive the car to work. <laughs> whoever, whoever can build the best incubator and still have a car left will win an award from us. Well, I like to think of my own car as an incubator at times. <laughs> well, and from that illustrious list of innovative solutions, let's move on to a discussion of a problem that has, for hundreds if not thousands of years, made people miserable and defied solution. I'm talking about the common cold. Our guest today is author of the book Achu, The Uncommon Life of Your Common Cold, Jennifer Ackerman. Ms. Ackerman is a senior fellow at the Titch College of Citizenship and Public Service at Tufts University. We all know there's no cure for the common cold, but it does have a fascinating social and biological history, and we're going to learn more about that now because, you know what they say, know thine enemy. Ms. Ackerman, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Thank you so much. Glad to be here. Ah, we're glad to have you here because we're all scared of catching a cold in this small <laughs> little cold studio. So tell our, our listeners, what compelled you to focus on the common cold for your book? Well, um, as a child, I got um, just a string of colds. I was constantly sick, constantly out of school. And, you know, my seems like a lot of my classmates escaped uh, this fate. And, um, you know, I'd always been curious about what made some people susceptible, uh, more susceptible to colds than, than other people. And so I finally got around to investigating the question a little bit and, and really found that the uh, the world of the common cold is, is a, a fascinating uh subject indeed. Right. It's all over the internet. Everyone has their cure. Everyone has their theory about common colds. So give us an idea what you're talking about specifically when you call the cold one of the world's most successful pathogens. We like success on this show, even pathogens. <laughs> yes. Well, it is, um, uh, you know, the reason it has the name the common cold is because it's, uh, it's just extremely common. It has, um, over evolutionary time, adapted itself extremely well to um, our bodies as habitats, and, um, and it makes use of our um, uh, sometimes nasty habits to, to spread itself. Um, you know, we are uh, generally the, the, uh, the most common route of, of spread for colds is, um, is by way of, of hands and um, and t- touching noses and eyes, and we touch our noses and eyes far more than we like to admit. Um, you know, several times a, uh, an hour. I don't know what you're talking Matt about. Matt was just touching his <laughs> mouth. I do not know what you're talking. Get about. Get your hands away from your mouth, Matt. Yeah, you know, I stop shaking hands with my patients, and I just tell them quite honestly, I don't want another cold this year. I have a question. His patients love him, by the way. They, that's right. I hug them, but I don't touch them. <laughs> Where do we get the term cold? Why is it called a cold? It's a good question, and it's it's um, actually in in many different languages. The uh, the word for cold is um, is the same word as, as for cold temperatures, and um, you know there's some theories about this. It's um, could it be because uh, colds cause you to feel a sort of chill, or is it because um, they're more common during uh, the colder, cooler months? Um, that you know there has been a, a longstanding myth that cold temperatures cause colds, and uh, which is, of course, not the case. It's viruses that cause colds. 
but uh, but the myth has been persistent, and I think it's rooted in the language. I thought the myth was that in, in cold temperatures, your nasal passages dry out, and that was a better place for the cold virus to take hold. Seed itself. Seed itself, yeah. yeah. Is that true? Uh, not really. I and mean, there's oh, some... There's some <laughs> I'm shattered again. <laughs> Another myth shattered. There are a couple of studies that suggest that, but, but generally, at least from the experts I spoke with, they, there's really no connection between cold temperature and, uh, and colds. Why don't we get into the history of the cold a little bit? How far back are we going as far as your investigations into the history of the common cold from therapy and speculations, cure talk, remedies? Right. Well, it goes all the way back to uh, the 1770s, really. Um, you know, Benjamin Franklin was, uh, was ahead of his time in the sense that he, um, he understood that it, it wasn't cold temperature, but some kind of um, agent that was transmitted from person to person. And he couldn't name that agent. That didn't happen until uh, later. But he did understand that, that there was this transmission um, through some kind of invisible agent. Uh, and then we, we run into, uh, really, uh, it's not until World War I uh, when uh, Walter Cruz um, shows that, that the nasal secretions from somebody who's suffering from a cold is actually capable of producing a cold in another person. Um, but he also was not able to identify the, the particular agent. Um, that came uh, really toward the end of, of World War II um, at a place called the Common Cold Unit um, near Stonehenge in England. Uh, there was uh, one of the, it's one of the leading research centers on colds. Uh, it was for at least for, for four decades until it closed in, in the 1980s. And there and, and other places around the world, cold viruses were, were finally isolated. So it was those druids at Stonehenge that figured it out for us. Aren't there any ancient references to colds? Oh yes, um, there's. You know that the the um, in fact the the age old remedy for colds, um, chicken soup goes back. You know anyway a thousand years. So so we've been uh, catching colds for um, you know as long as we've been human probably, and um, and there have been you know many ancient. Um, uh, and pretty wonderful remedies such as, you know, kissing the, the, um, the muzzle of a mouse or one of my favorites is rolling up an, an orange peel and sticking it in each nostril. Oh, Which I, Michael is known to do. I, I, no, I prefer the uh, brandy and tea one. After seven or eight of those, you don't even feel a cold. That's right. <laughs> That's you, you drink until you see two hats and then you don't feel your symptoms. Well, the funny thing about the cold, you talked about it in your book a little bit, that Apart from it being comparatively benign to a number of other things that you can see in the light microscope, you mentioned that it's far less sexy to the general public because, for one, it can't be seen. That even under electron microscopy, it's very hard to see as anything more than a speck of dirt. What do you think about that? Well, yeah, it's um, it's nothing to look at, um, but it certainly is a, a a clever bug. I mean, one of the um, interesting things about uh, cold viruses is that they they really are smarter than we are. They hide in our cells, and so we, we haven't even been able to develop an antiviral drug that works against them because it usually by the time we um, know that we have an infection, the, uh, the virus has already done its dirty work, so it's really too late to set an antiviral in, in motion at that point. So um, they may be invisible, but boy, are they clever. 
If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD XM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. We're talking with Jennifer Ackerman, author of the book Achu, The Uncommon Life of Your Common Cold. And this is fascinating. Let's talk about more cold remedies. What works? What should our listeners tell their patients to do? Well, you know, unfortunately, a lot of the natural remedies that are out there on the market that purport to either prevent colds or um, reduce symptoms really are not effective. Um, you know, if they are, it's often due to the placebo effect. And, I, you know, I, one of the things I hate to do is spoil the placebo effect for people who, who swear by, you know, zinc lozenges or echinacea or something. The placebo effect is very powerful, but um, it, it really... It, you know, in a lot of cases, these these natural remedies are are not effective. What uh, what I do when um, when I have a cold, I follow the advice of um, uh, Jack Waltney, who was studied the common cold for anyway forty years. And what he advises is um, when you feel that first little scratchy throat, the first beginning of symptoms, he suggests. Uh, to people that they take two drugs every 12 hours. And the first one is ibuprofen, uh, and that basically relieves, you know, your headache and your sore throat and that sort of yucky feeling, that malaise that comes with a cold. And the second drug is um, a first-generation antihistamine, um, the kind that make you drowsy like Benadryl or Trimeton, Chlortrimeton, um, and these will reduce nasal secretions. Um, and so these are things uh, you probably want to take those those uh uh, first generation antihistamines at bedtime so that you're not driving around with feeling groggy. But, um, but, but, but the combination of these two drugs will actually make you feel better while you're getting better. They don't, uh, shorten the cold. They, they just alleviate symptoms. And, uh, the antihistamine can also, uh, reduce the chances that you're going to get secondary infections like sinusitis by, um, by, uh, reducing those nasal secretions. And you mentioned ibuprofen, you mentioned antihistamine. I mean, these sound like parts of a typical combo pack that you get in most of these over-the-counter medications that we see for colds these days. Is that right? Yes, although those those combination cold medications um, are generally not recommended by the the experts that I spoke with because they contain ingredients that we may not necessarily need. Um, and also some of them contain fairly significant doses of um, acetaminophen, and people frequently aren't aware of that. They'll take Tylenol at the same time that they're taking these um, combination cold remedies, and that can actually um, put them at risk for overdosing on acetaminophen. One thing that I found fascinating that I didn't realize was that all the symptoms that you get from the cold, the, the miserable feeling, the malaise, the runny nose, that's really your immune system. That's not the virus. Yes, this is this is fascinating to me as well. You know, for for a long time, people have thought that the, that the miseries of a cold, all the the runny nose and and sneezing and other symptoms, were were the result of the destructive effect of the cold virus itself on ourselves. Um, and this is actually true of uh, flu viruses. The, those bugs actually do destroy the cells of our lower respiratory tract. But it turns out that the most common cold viruses really don't do any direct damage to our bodies, that our symptoms result from the body's response to the presence of the virus. So the body makes a whole slew of inflammatory agents um, that inflame the cells and tissues in our, in our nose and our throat, and that's what gives us the, the runny nose, cough, you know, et cetera. It is the worst. But 
What's good for our listeners to know is that many of them already know that the common cold isn't always benign, and we talk lightly about it here, but you dedicate a portion of your book to what you call the killer colds. Why don't you tell us about them? Yeah, the killer colds. Um, there are some cold viruses that uh, that actually mutate and um, can become very nasty indeed. And um, there was one in particular that uh, that struck in 2007. It was a, a a common cold virus known as um, adenovirus 14, and it um, actually killed people. In especially, uh, it was a, a kind of a small epidemic in a military base. This is a very unusual occurrence. The the more common killer cold is a cold that um, uh, that affects somebody who has asthma, um, particularly children. Um, the uh, unfortunately the, the Common cold is a is a, a common cause of asthmatic attacks in children, and um, and it can you know actually send them to the hospital um, and may even result in in, uh, in fatality. So those those colds that affect people with asthma are really the the the, uh, the killer colds to worry about. Well, what's your next book going to be? Have you thought of the next one? Follow up. Got a few ideas, but uh, nothing definite yet. Um, and uh, this one was a, you know, it was a great one to work on. Really enjoyed uh, uh, learning uh, some of the stories behind colds. I also have uh, the book has some some recipes for for um, uh, common uh, for I guess I call them Chicken cold soup. comforts, right? <laughs> I Chicken saw the recipes sort of there. I read them. Yeah, and uh, and some suggestions for some some fun stuff to read while you're sick. So we can read the book while you're sick with a cold. Yes. <laughs> Might as well get thematically appropriate while you're there. Do you see a, a cure coming along in sometime, I guess, in our lifetimes, or do you think um, it's supportive therapy all the way? I think um, that there are two things that are happening that are promising, um, and both of them have to do with the uh, um, genetic technology that we have available now. I think there may be, um, we may be able to create a vaccine that, um, that can address multiple cold virus strains at once. Um, by finding some kind of common genetic element um, and targeting that. I think that's a possibility. The other thing that is going on that's interesting is that I, I think we're going to um, become much more sophisticated about um, how individuals may respond differently to different remedies and um, that we're going to be able to use genomics, actually, to tailor preventive cold medicines for individuals. And I think that's um, a pretty exciting area. Our guest today has been Jennifer Ackerman, Senior Fellow at the Tisch College of Citizenship and Public Service at Tufts University. We've been talking about her book, Achu, The Uncommon Life of Your Common Cold. Ms. Ackerman, thank you for joining us today on Second Opinion Live. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Matt, maybe they ought to go for, like, mosquitoes that don't catch colds and malaria. Yeah, but those would be super dominant mosquitoes that would take over the universe. So we yeah. have to be careful about that. That's okay with me. I like <laughs> it's mosquitoes. It's okay with me as well. <laughs> All right. Let the strong survive, as they say. All right. Now on to the forum. And if you want to join this conversation, call 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. Don't call while you're driving. Or email us at sol at reachmd.com. Also, not while you're in the car. You can also tweet us at handle ReachMD or find us on Facebook. That you can do in the car. You can in the car. Or you can just drive to the studio and talk live with us now. 
So British Health Secretary Andrew Lansley has just unveiled a new public health initiative. Britain has similar health problems as ours here in the U.S., obesity, diabetes, heart disease, smoking and substance abuse, depression, STDs. They also have bad teeth that we don't have. You get the picture. But rather than solving these problems with legislation or what they call nannying people, the British government plans to nudge them, meaning encouraging people to change their own behaviors. Good luck. Good luck. And let's break down the nudge versus nanny debate here. Nudging is a mix of inducement and advice. It's encouragement to try to influence people to make healthier choices, whereas nannying tends to force those choices with legislation and taxation. So I think we're clear. But the question is, which is more effective? And is it right for the government to get involved in trying to change people's behavior at all? Well, let's look at this issue from England's perspective. Very well. And examine what they really mean by nudging the population. Health Secretary Lansley says, under England's new plan, the aim will be to use the least intrusive approach necessary, focusing on enabling and guiding people's choices wherever possible. It isn't legislation on harmful substances or practices, bans, or taxes. Yeah, yeah. but the term nudging itself actually comes from a model called the New Field Council of Bioethics Ladder on Interventions. It comes from Monty Python. Six times. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. We know that. <laughs> it's the new confluence of economics and psychology. The new field interventions range from the least intrusive actions, such as providing information to allow people to make their own choices, to more directly guiding choices. And finally, to the most intrusive, which is to eliminate choice altogether through legislation circa 1984. Some examples there are compulsory seat belts or smoking bans in public places, which England pulled off not so long ago, as I believe we talked about in a prior yeah, show. Yeah, right. But on the less invasive end, nudging includes adding incentives such as giving vouchers for gym memberships or improving bike paths and playgrounds for children to encourage exercise. It can also mean trying to push for healthier purchasing habits through marketing and social norms, such as using signs in stores that say, most people who buy shop here buy two pieces of fruit. Well, do they? That's right. <laughs> what, what do they buy? Bananas? Pears? But they get two pieces of fruit, Michael. And I can't say that the last example there, <laughs> that doesn't exactly make me think, well, I'm going to get me three pieces of fruit then. But I don't know. Who knows? Marketing and social pressures are powerful things. And if ad agencies know how to do it, we might as well get on that bandwagon too, don't you think? This is why Britain lost its empire. Because they behaved like this. All <laughs> You're right. going to get it's them angry if you talk like that. It's time to pony up and ask the big question. Does nudging work? Does nudging nudge, work? Nudge, nudge, nudge. nudge don't wink, eat wink. that McDonald's. Nudge, nudge. Come on. Well, frankly, I don't think we know yet. But either, I mean, whether England sails or sinks on this large-scale gamble, we're going to have to address it on the same scale sooner or later. And we know that the public at large doesn't want to be told what to do. I mean, you know it, I know it, the American people know it. And there's evidence that health practice changes really stick when people have more control over their own choices. Right. But on the other hand, a number of experts say nudging doesn't go far enough. How can people make healthy choices when unhealthy things are for sale all around them? There's all these big fast food enterprises. You can buy cigarettes anywhere. You can go buy alcohol. Big food and tobacco companies have a serious head start in this behavioral economics field our health pundits are glowing over. You know, it's, it's like, yeah. and can anyone really argue against seatbelt laws or indoor smoking bans? You know, these are simply effective state legislations. So the nanny method has a place here. Yeah, and I wouldn't argue with you on that one. But it's a good lead into another big question, which is who should be the nanny? I mean, is it the government's place to get involved in public health? I'll take charge of it for everybody. Well, very well. Right. Well, let's look at it this way. We can say that the government does have a legitimate interest in public health, especially since they're paying most of the medical bills. Yeah. I guess if we're talking about Medicare and Medicaid and leave out our 
tax dollars subsidize the government, then sure. But there's also another debate here over whether to focus that spending on public health and prevention campaigns, or should we focus on therapy and cures? And like you said earlier, I mean, if the government doesn't step in, who else do you think is going to step in? You can bet that the industry is going to try to protect its own interests, which they already do. It's called lobbyists, right? Yeah, well... Yeah, I mean, I think we should talk about it for a second, because we don't know whose interests are going to be truly fulfilled here. I don't think it's going to be in the public's eye if it isn't the government. But the same token, I'm not sure I trust the government to make our own choices for us. I don't trust them and I don't trust people to make their own choices because given your own choices, look at our Americans around us. Look at the smoking that still goes on. Look at the obesity. Look at the poor health choices we all make when left to our own devices. Just kind of nudging and telling people, as a dermatologist, stay out of the sun. I get people coming back all the time tanned from their vacations. They go, Doc, I couldn't help it. It feels so good. Wink, wink, nudge, nudge. You're going to get melanoma. Ha ha ha. It doesn't work. Are you sure, though? Because we like to say it doesn't work. We like to say that, for instance, that pharmaceutical influence on doctor relationships, they don't influence our prescribing behaviors. But evidence dictates otherwise, that we are influenced. And that simple marketing and behavioral economics, which they have been on top of for so many years before the health side got their fingers on it, that it's been around and it does work. But that's different, Matt. Marketing products to us and suggesting we use them is very different than trying to market people to take care of their own health. That's a whole different issue. Here, use this drug as compared to go buy a cheeseburger. Come on, cheeseburgers taste good. Well, listen, let's turn to our listeners on this one. We want to know what you think. Should the government nudge the public to make healthy choices? Nudge? Or should healthy choices be legislated? Or should the government stay out of this issue altogether? Or should Matt and I be in charge? That's another choice. Go online to the ReachMD poll at reachmd.com slash poll and tell us what you think. When you put us in charge, we don't care what you think. We're magnanimous. Go go to reachmd.com slash poll. Let us know. Very benevolent. (laughs) And I think it looks like uh, our producer is nudging us right now to leave it there. And I think we're going to have to call it a day. But trust me when I say you do not want to get on those guys in the back room. You don't want to get them mad because nannying is definitely not their style. Our thanks again to Jennifer Ackerman, our guest. And until next time, I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. You can find an archive of this show or listen to past episodes of Second Opinion Live at reachmd.com slash SOL. Thanks to Tony and Paula. Have a great day today and make healthy choices, everybody. Spoonful of sugar. And tune into our show next time. (laughs) 